happening now. We want to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good morning, good day, good evening. This is EdTech Situation Room, episode number 213 for March 31st, 2021. My name is Jason Neifer, and I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, Montana State Virtual School located on the beautiful University of Montana campus right here in Missoula, Montana. And joining me tonight as always, good evening, Dr. West Fryer. Good evening, Jason. Welcome and hello to everyone from Oklahoma City, where spring seems to be underway. Hello to Peggy George in our chat room. Uh, I am the Technology Integration and Innovation Specialist at the Cassidy School and getting to be an instructional coach now and uh, and having having fun. This is the third trimester, and I repeat basically my curriculum with my kids. And so we just have started oral history project and we're going to be starting our scratchy animation for fifth grade next week. So life is good. And today's the last day of March. So what do you think about that? I'm excited for the coming spring. So we did have what is oftentimes referred to as third winter in Montana. I just went third winter. It's third winter in Montana. And um, it dumped some snow the other day, but I hear it could get up to 73 degrees this weekend. So I'm excited that spring is almost here. Is that like Hobbit second breakfast? You know? It might be. Yeah. Sometimes a little harsher, though. Oh, my gosh. Hey, Peggy's using your Zoom background. So she's. Oh, 92 in Phoenix. Wow. Well, that is definitely, that's definitely not spring. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, don't you just kind of, yeah, I don't even know if you have a winter there. So. Yep. Good point. Well, well what are we doing on this show, Dr. Neifer? Well, other than talking casually about the weather, we like to talk about technology news and shoot it through the educational prism to see if we can provide any insight for our fellow educators across the lands. And we have all of our articles are available at our website at techsr.com slash links, where you can go to our now like epically sized uh, Google document to see the links going back all the way to episode one four years ago. Tonight, we have a little bit of breaking news in a moment, uh, infrastructure information, security, hardware articles, tech correction, uh, March Madness, kind of, sort of, some Google news, and of course, our favorite Jeopardy style category, miscellaneous. So, Dr. Fryer, where would you like to start tonight? Oh, shoot. Let's start with miscellaneous. Uh, this is kind of tied to a future of work article that you shared a couple of weeks ago, or maybe it was more than that. Uh, but this is a New York Times piece that was on March 29th. Remote work is here to stay. Manhattan may never be the same. And talking about, you know, just how many office buildings and even floors of office buildings in, in Manhattan, um, New York are Empty have been empty companies that are, you know, opting to give employees the, uh, the opportunity to be able to work remotely. Um, it's going to be, be pretty fascinating. I remember when the pandemic lockdown happened and they had, you know, pictures and, and just how eerie it was, you know, in, in downtown Manhattan without just the buzz and just all the people. And, uh, I think it's, I think it's really exciting, especially the fact that remote internet, you know, via Elon Musk and, um, Starlink and, and per perhaps other, other methods, 5G, but maybe not as much. The satellite, I think, really opens up the rural, op you know, opportunity for people. Um, maybe to really rethink urbanization and, um, you know, I, I think it's good. There's probably a lot of folks who are also, you know, breathlessly waiting to go back to life as it was. And I've visited with some family members recently who were 
kind of concerned that that might be happening to, to them employment wise, even though they've demonstrated this capacity to, to work remotely. So anyway, it, uh, maybe there's going to be an influx of new folks coming to you in Missoula, Jason, you know, people yearning for big sky country and the very calm politics of your state. <laughs> yeah. It's looking a little more, um, uh, a little more like a Midwestern state than, than Northwestern state as of late. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, I obviously work at a distance learning program and frankly, I've been able to do my job since day one. And yet I choose to go to the office regularly. Um, and in fact, lived in another city in the first five years of my working for Montana Digital Academy and eventually moved to Missoula, um, uh, uh, four years into, uh, the stint. Of, of my job with the idea oh, that sure. there was some benefit, some advantage to me being face to face on a fairly regular basis. And I'm very lucky that I get to work at an institution that, that uh, offers the privilege of working at home. But to be frank, I choose not to, uh, uh, much more often than not obviously ignoring the pandemic. And uh, the article we talked about last week was about Microsoft coming up with ways to make kind of a hybrid between working all at home and working all in a physical building. That's where I'm guessing a lot of these businesses end up uh, finding their way in part to perhaps keep their employees within their orbit in a city, but also because there is advantage to, to face-to-face meetings. And that's, you know, a guy that helps run a distance uh, learning program telling you that. And so I, I do think, I think that, yes, it's a very interesting time, and not unlike the 1918 pandemic, which had a significant uh, footprint in our culture for the next 10 years, my guess is is that once we see the end of this, and we're clearly not there yet, but once we see the end of this, it will have some lasting impact on us culturally, and of course, a big piece of that's going to be work. And I really wonder about higher ed and maybe we can look for some articles. We don't have anything this week in there, but, you know, prognostications about, I, I kind of think K-12 is is going to be affected, but not as dramatically. But I wonder about higher ed. So, yeah. And, um, you know, it's it's going to be the continuation of debate that started 25 years ago regarding distance learning programs in higher ed. Um, some of, of my graduate classes, most of my master's degree and some of my doctoral degree was done online. And I don't think it, it devalued my my experience at all. But I also wonder if I would have felt differently if I'd also received my undergraduate degree online. I spent uh, four and a half years uh, very much enjoying my undergraduate time. And I like that experience. So, yeah, I think it's going to be very interesting to watch all these institutions kind of change uh, their their vantage point and their posture. Yeah. And as I contemplate possibilities for the future, uh, not for next year, but maybe the year after, it, that's an interesting, you know, I think my ideal would, would be a, um, a professorship where, you know, a lot of face-to-face classes, but, but maybe some online. But when you think yeah. about the capability to, you know, transformatively reach folks that just aren't going to be able to geographically come to your, you know, your, your classroom. Uh, I know Scott McLeod at uh, the University of Colorado in Denver, um, you know, has been developing a, a pretty interesting uh, uh, graduate degree, you know, cert- I think a certification certificate program. And anyway, it's uh, it's it's going to be fascinating to see. Um, hopefully we're not going to see too many people, you know, try to jump in the bandwagon of, you know, sort of mass mass marketing distance learning. I mean, we ran into that when I was at Texas Tech where, you know, certain administrators just really saw dollar signs and wanted to really create courses and programs that would just, you know, be able to to churn out the numbers and, and generate, you know, lots of revenue. Um, perhaps that has a place and, and a context, but 
in terms of quality and interaction, it, you know, that's, that's certainly not the vision of, uh, of, of a lot of folks in, in higher ed. And also I think there's a lot of students that are looking for, you know, something a lot more than they could sign up for a master class with or something. So, yeah. well, and, and we've talked about this a little bit in the past, but, uh, you know, I went to a small Catholic college, a private institution for my undergraduate degree. And, um, I went there because they had a debate team and I was a member of the debate team and competed and, and, and was, uh, received a scholarship for doing so, which is something that, that I, I still very much value, you know, all these years later. But, um, my best class, uh, in, in the, the four and a half years I was taking classes in that institution was a 400 level class where I was literally the only student in the class. Uh, all my classes were really small and I really appreciate that until I had the opportunity to work at, at a larger state university. Um, but all my classes were really, really small. And once I hit the upper division of, of, of my major and minor in my junior and senior year, those classes became smaller and smaller and smaller until the inevitable happened and it was just being a professor. And we were able to schedule a time at a coffee shop once a week for a couple hours and talk about books. And by the way, you always do your homework when it's just you and the professor, right? Like that, that, that's not an option to skip or to fudge on that. And when I wrote a paper for him, he read it in front of me and we discussed it together. And it was one of the best experiences ever. Now you could, I could argue that you could probably reproduce that on email or a video chat, or there's lots of ways to personalize that, but you know, if you're looking to use distance learning or technology to impersonalize learning or to, to, to maybe diminish the amount of connection, I think you're losing a real opportunity. And I hope that if technology is part of what gets reconsidered post-pandemic education-wise, it's always used in service of those relationships and not to put barriers in place. No, that's pretty close to the Oxford tutorial model. In fact, that's kind of beyond yes. it. I, usually you have like two other people that are with you and the, and the professor and, and that kind of thing. So pretty cool. Shout out to Carroll College, right? Is that the alma mater? Yes. Yeah. That's my, my undergraduate institution was that. And I, 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 I don't know if I appreciated it as much at the time, but in reflection, it was a really great institution for me and a good connection to me personally. All right. Well, I intentionally did not select a tech correction question since we spent, you know, about <laughs> three quarters of the show last time. So, but I'm not, I'm not, I'm not uh, at all trying to steer your decision. Where, where would you like to go next? Yeah, let's maybe dance around that one for a couple minutes. Uh, great hardware article that I think has a lot of application. If you are buying computers in the next uh, couple of months for next school year, Apple Supplier Foxconn says that they will continue to have component shortages until at least 2022. And one of the things that if you were an, at all involved in, as a decision maker in a school picking up new technology, new computers, et cetera, um, there was a shortage that either dramatically delayed the delivery of your purchases or in some cases canceled them altogether. And so if you're using um, stimulus money or education funding or any pots of money to help maybe evolve your technology strategy or to go one-to-one, -one. make sure those orders go in as soon as they can, because you will continue to find shortages next year based on almost every legitimate source. And that article mentions just how many uh, companies have talked about shortages. So, you know, consumer stuff from the, the PlayStation 5 and the Xbox Series X, um, and, uh, you know, Sony, Microsoft, this is, you know, car companies, this is broadly in the, uh, in the economy, uh, the reality of um, shortages and just, you know, and, and people ordering a lot of stuff, right? Uh, and probably we're seeing a surge in orders, you know, just because of stimulus checks and stuff like that in the United States being cut. So, 
you know, if you're like the Knifer household, you've got a lot of screens. you got a lot of options. So it's really not a problem. But, you know, not everybody lives in that world. Yep, that's true. And also that, you know, you this may be your big opportunity, too, to establish a one-to-one program in your school um, building or district. And if that's the case, you know, great. But just be sure that, that you're minding, uh, minding the, the complicated marketplace that exists right now. And that is literally the story of our school because we were able to cobble together enough devices with carts and things like that to uh, provide devices for students who needed them during emergency remote learning and to, you know, we we ordered and, and tested a bunch of iPads this year, but the decision's been made to be one-to-one with the Chromebook. And so, uh, yeah, I think orders, they haven't been placed. They're about, it, you know, imminently about to be placed. And um, I, I think we're going with Dell. And from what we've heard in their supply chain, um, it, it looks like we're not going to have a problem getting those for the summer, but depends on what you're going to order. And don't be planning on probably the latest and greatest models in large quantities, I would say. Absolutely. Um, let me share one other article, um, and then I want to talk about infrastructure for a couple minutes. I read a really interesting article this morning from ZDNet about uh, firmware attacks are on the rise. And generally speaking, this is speaking not to schools, but to large IT security firms that are helping and supporting things like Fortune 500 companies. But uh, the article talks a little bit about, and we've talked about a couple of these different uh, attacks that have occurred that are actually going after things like the memory of your computer, not the storage, but the, the working memory to try to take information out of there that might be secure, like passwords or other sensitive information. And one of the ways they're doing that is by uh, attacking the firmware of your computer, which is not like the operating system. It's the software that exists on your hardware that interacts between the hardware and your software. And it's the thing you first see when you start loading up your computer. If you're on a Mac, when that the Apple icon pops up, that's firmware loading in the background on a Windows machine. Oftentimes it will show a Windows logo or uh, some information about the hardware of the computer before it, it boots into Windows. And that's all firmware that's, that's booting during that time. And uh, I've actually heard more about this from, uh, from tech director types than reading about it in the media. So I do think that there's a lot of awareness in schools and around IT folks supporting schools. But I just thought I'd mention it because that's what we do on the show. Absolutely. And uh, I had a friend at another independent school contact me this week who's faculty, he's wanting to go uh, two-factor, you know, and I, yeah. I had to look that up. We implemented that in 2017. So the spring of 2017, I went to a, a meeting of tech directors and probably in the Dallas or, or uh, might have been the Houston area, but anyway, it was in Texas. Heard about one school that was doing this and picked up on that and really thought, you know what, that is definitely a wave of the future. And we took the fall to really ask everybody to transition, taught about password managers, you know, and then fully required by Christmas, everyone be on on two factor. But this stuff about the firmware is interesting because that's that's different. That's not social engineering. That's not stuff yep. the password gets around. Uh, it kind of reminds me of solar winds a little bit. I mean, it's a it's a deep attack if it's going to you know, go after firmware. And that's really the kind of stuff. Well, I don't know if you wipe your device, actually, that doesn't necessarily wipe out your firmware. Does no, it? it doesn't. Uh, there are, I know this very specific piece of knowledge. Uh, sometimes Chromebooks, when you do a power wash on them, will ask you if you want to overwrite the firmware, right? To basically uh, start over again. Yeah. But I don't think it's typical to, right. uh, for firmware to, uh, to be wiped either when you're reinstalling uh, Mac OS or Windows. 
Well, I shared my third TEDx talk last week on Thursday up at the University of Central Oklahoma, and my topic was technology fear therapy. And I don't know, it, it could have been more clearly labeled like protecting yourself and your family in the digital world. Um, and I was advocating for people to, you know, use have I been pwned to find out how many times you've been hacked, like really personalize the need for secure passwords, um, you know, use secure passwords that are unique, that are um, complex and long, and then uh, turn on multi-factor authentication on as many things as you can use a password manager. And then the fourth thing was hygiene, which was to wipe your device. But like we're saying, when you just reinstall an operating system on a phone or a computer, unless it is something special like Chrome and it's letting you wipe the firmware, it'll be interesting to see if that becomes more of a norm. Um, and like we, t you talked about Fuchsia, the yeah. Google operating system last week. Um, we really need to be looking at these next generation operating systems, not only from an ease of management, but from the security standpoint and not just in the enterprise, but personally as well. Right. I mean, a lot of us in our homes, especially during the pandemic. I mean, if you didn't feel like an IT person before, I mean, there's just a there's a big a big need that you have to make sure your network at home is, is running well and it's fast and that your devices don't have malware and and, you know, bad, bad software. And so. It's going to be really interesting to see how this evolves because I expect, just like we've seen with the mobile uh, operating systems of iOS and Android, using an App Store model and trying to have a little bit more control over updates. And Apple really has the ideal situation there in terms of so many users, you know, updating and installing these patches. And it's just different from Android. But it's just I'm going to be super curious to see what happens with with Fuchsia. And in responding to to those firmware threats, it makes sense that you know, operating system uh, manufacturers or software developers are, are going to try to push for a complete wipe, you know, so that you have the opportunity to be sure everything is pristine, although your data can still be affected. But good tip. All right. Where to next, sir? Well, uh, let's talk about infrastructure, because I think this, particularly for our listeners that are, are in or near rural schools, I think this will, will make a, a, a big splash, I hope. So uh, President Biden announced his infrastructure package today. It's $2 trillion. It's very wide ranging. And uh, certainly you can find out more about that at your favorite mainstream news site. But for our purposes, there's been a $100 billion set aside in the infrastructure package aimed at broad brand, broadband infrastructure. And the idea here is that Biden has made it a goal by the end of the decade to have 100% of Americans have access to broadband technologies. So we've talked about this topic uh, probably dozens of times on the show, in particular when the pandemic struck last year, that there were a lot of folks that went home in rural areas and either lacked robust access to the internet, in other words, it was very limited or very slow, or had no access to broadband at all. And so I guess I would say openly, I hope that this is a reality in, in 10 years. I think that makes it almost... 30 years too late, in my humble opinion, to provide broadband access to every American. But there is a lot of potential here if the package is situated in a way that makes sure that it gets what it pays for. And what I mean by that, we've talked about this a couple of times in the past. This isn't the first time the federal government has invested in broadband technology uh, in places that desperately need it, like very rural areas across the United States. 
It's just that oftentimes they trusted contracts from uh, major corporate vendors that promised something, was received the grants and the money, and didn't deliver. And so I would hope that this comes with a very robust effort to make sure that those that take the money get the access and aren't just picking uh, uh, low picking or low hanging fruit, excuse me, and then trying to say that that's providing broadband or providing third and fourth providers for cities with 150,000 people. So any thoughts about that? Yes. There's some different ways to go about that bid process. And, you know, E-rate has been been a big part of all of that. Uh, Part of what just happened with Starlink um, anyways, is interesting because there's, there's different ways to go about bidding and, and paying companies to do that. And we don't have to just, you know, do it the old way. What I did not see in that article in a brief scan was, what is broadband? And we talked about on the show that yes. I, who is the outgoing FCC director, and I haven't actually looked for this. We could Google for it, I guess, to see if there is a new uh, FCC uh, head um, that, you know, he would he refused to redefine broadband and said it was still, wasn't it three meg or something like that or something yeah. just really ridiculous. Yeah. ridiculous. I mean, it, it was, I think it was over a decade old. And to say that that is is adequate and and that's all you need to meet, you know, ISPs when you're when you're providing uh, broadband connectivity, um, you know, was unfortunate. Of course, he was formerly a employee of uh, some of the big telecom companies before he, you know, enjoyed the revolving door of coming into government service. And he's probably going back out the revolving door to, you know, another company. So, yes, that's how government service sometimes works. But I. um would love to follow up. Maybe we can do that on where the Biden administration is on their appointment of new officials. And then if they're going to do any redefinition of broadband. And I think it's going to be fascinating to see how satellites fit into this. And by the way, man, space, it's just so important. Um, and I, I mentioned, I think the Kara Swisher podcast that I had listened to with the general, who's the head of us space command, Man, we are really, really relying on it, and we're going to become even more so, I think, um, in, in, in the future. Space is just pretty, pretty important. But I don't know if that will, you know, only be limited to residential users. Well, I mean, are there any Montana schools that are going to, you know, sign up for a Starlink account? Is that going to be, you know, E-rate fundable? I don't know. Uh, possibly so. But it is, you know, we're uniquely challenged in the United States because of geography, you know, especially relative to, you know, countries like Singapore right. or, Japan or places like that. Uh, and so it is an important, important banner and, and torch that many of us need to, to carry and advocate for. And I share your hope that we're going to see, you know, better results than we have in the past from some companies that took a lot of money. And in some cases, just either under-delivered or just didn't deliver on the promises that were expected. And then one note that's a kind of a companion article, as it turns out, one of the telecoms that has been trying to argue against more broadband access is AT&T. And Ars Technica reported a couple of days ago that AT&T is lobbying against nationwide fiber as a specific solution because, uh, in their words, um, uh, we don't need more than 10 megabits, uh, 10 megabit per second upload, uh, which, you know, is fine until you're on a video conference. So, you know, like that, that's exactly what we're talking about in that, you know, let's not waste this historic opportunity to really fortify the technology infrastructure in the United States by setting a bar that's, that's 20 years old. 
One of my favorite infrastructure stories I heard, I think the first time I came to uh, Montana and it was about the ranch where the, the, uh, the river runs through it was filmed. And there was a lawyer that owned that. And, you know, they, they paid for that last mile of a T1 line, you know, to come all the way to the cabin. Um, you know, it's, it's expensive to run these lines in places where there's just not a lot of people and having worked for AT&T for a couple of years and having some conversations with different officials. I mean, return on investment is what, you know, corporations look at primarily. And this is why we need government, you know, intervention and regulation. We need co-ops. We need different strategies other than just saying, hey, you know, profitable corporations come and take care of our needs because that didn't happen with electrification. We had to have a lot of other things happen, uh, even in terms of dial tone to get dial tone everywhere. You know, it had to, it was universal service and it was something that, that the government, you know, subsidized and, and regulated. Um, the other thought I have on this fiber and AT&T is our son is poised to be moving to Houston uh, within the next uh, two weeks. And he's been shopping for, in fact, this was one of the reasons he picked the apartment complex he did, brand new build and eligible for AT&T fiber. And I'll have to get the exact statistics, but it's all less than a hundred bucks for a lot of bandwidth. And I think it's like 45 a month for 300 down or something like that, which was like a mid tier. And then there, he could, he could go more, but anyway, uh, that just also speaks to, you know, the, some of the benefits of living in an urban, urban city and having competition, but in a new build, Oh, look at this. We have fiber, you know, that's being brought to the home. And that is definitely going to be something at whatever point, that Shelly and I are, are moving and looking for new locations. I mean, who, who knows? Maybe Starlink will be our, our answer. But if you can have fiber at your house, that seems to be, you know, kind of the holy grail of, of bandwidth and connectivity. Absolutely. Well, Wes, where to next, sir? Oh, let's see. Um, let's talk about, let's talk about, um, the, a couple tech corrections, uh, stuff. So, um, Recode on March 26th had an article. If Mark Zuckerberg won't fix Facebook's algorithm problem, who will? Uh, last week, I think it was, we had some testimony by big tech companies. Uh, and there was, there's another article I put in there about Zuckerberg's proposals for reform. This one, which is Vox and Recode, uh, is talking about the advisory board, which is really pretty young. It only was started, I think, last year. And at this point, it only it's like a Supreme Court of Facebook for a, for the appeals when when folks have their content or when, you know, there are individuals that are banned or taken down. Uh, one of the questions which is going to be up for grabs is whether or not uh, Donald Trump is going to be allowed back onto Facebook. Um, Twitter has said he has a lifetime ban. But I think Facebook, according to this article, it's still up in the air. But what some people are hoping, I wouldn't hold your breath on this, is that maybe the oversight board can have even greater authority to look at things besides just these appeals and actually look at the algorithm and some, you know, more substantive uh, kinds of issues. But there's no indication from Facebook that that is is going to happen. One of the weird things, and I've mentioned this, I think, on the show, uh, this is probably lis being listening to the daily, maybe uh, today explained as well. I've been hearing ads by Facebook for regulation. And so this next article um, is an article from... 
The Verge on March 24th. And uh, the title is Mark Zuckerberg proposes limited to 30 reforms ahead of congressional hearing. So in terms of the tech correction, which we sometimes talk about forever and we'll try not to do half the show on tonight. Uh, this is an idea that we're going to be seeing and are seeing proposals for regulation and reform, both you know, self-reform, self-regulation by the tech companies to try to address a host of different criticisms and problems, which we have with social media and with technology companies that are so large, but then also this idea of regulation. So Facebook is trying to get ahead of that. And, you know, in these advertisements and these podcasts, you know, they're saying it's been decades since we've had, you know, uh, legislation. It's time for some new legislation. And it's weird. You're like, okay, this is from Facebook, but they're trying, you know, to shape the legislation. And so this, this Verge article actually was talking about his opening statement, which was released prior to their, their meeting. It was last Thursday that there was a misinformation hearing in the house of representatives. And so um, they are talking about, uh, trying to uh, retain their 230 protections, which, you know, allows for them to not be held fully responsible for the content on their network, as long as they're taking some good faith efforts to try to police that content and, you know, make and, and clean it up. But uh, anyway, Facebook is uh, is ahead of this. So, Dr. Neifer, how is all this going to play out with the tech companies testifying before Congress and lobbying and uh, trying to trying to write the script, as it were, for what the tech correction will be. Well, let's be honest, right? Lobbyists write a good percentage of legislation anyways. So it, it will be tech lobbyists that, that have a hand in this. The thing I just hope is that we can have some nuanced debates amongst our legislators that can hopefully create a, a good regulatory environment for this that doesn't border on the ridiculous. Like the part of the reason why, and, and I'm sure this is part of the thinking of Zuckerberg and his crew too, is that, you know, if Congress ends up writing it themselves, like, if Congress decides that they're going to be the one to write this legislation and they don't understand what they're writing or they don't take advice from kind of techie folks, we're going to end up with some very bizarre laws. So I guess it's an adversarial process and also it's going to have to be a collaborative process too. And so I don't know enough yet about what they're kind of sort of proposing I'm sure details are to come, but the bottom line is, is that I think it's good that they're part of the conversation. Well, in that Vox article, one of the people quoted was saying, and I think this was a legislature, and if it takes them speaking to us really, really slow and repeating, <laughs> so we'll understand it's like, but that's not going to do it. You know, we're yeah. going to need, we're going to need smart folks that really have an understanding of, of the underlying architecture of the internet, how that works. And, um, Anyway, it's it's I, I don't know if this does this have precedent that you've got these issues that are really kind of beyond a lot of the of, of the background and, and maybe even ability of the, of the of the elected senators representatives to understand. I don't know if that if that has a precedent in history, because the speed of technology and the pace of change. Um, I, I don't know. I'm not sure. So that's a that's a question for the historians among us of, you know, the House of Representatives and the Senate to see if there's anything else that, that looks like has looked like that before. So, yeah, yep. and he's pointing out, I mean, there are definitely very smart people in Congress. There's a lot of smart, um, you know, staffers that that work. And oftentimes, in addition to lobbyists, I mean, staffers have tremendous uh, power and, and tremendous in, influence. 
Um, Peggy's given a shout out to Kara Swisher's interview with Amy Klobuchar, uh, talking about her, you know, how well she has a handle on, on tech issues. So yes, hopefully, hopefully we will be pleasantly surprised, but, um, it, it, I think we're going to see some, some concrete details just as we saw Facebook coming out with yeah. some specifics. I think we're going to start to see, you know, when, I mean, when Facebook is pushing for, legislative change, I think we're going to see something uh, because there's the, the impetus has been from outside the tech companies. And now that the tech, that's that there's nothing that's a clearer acknowledgement of the tech correction than it's coming than for one of your main companies, which we do have now Facebook, but like Amazon uh, or, or Apple or, or Microsoft to, to be proposing legislation. So. Yep. Absolutely. Uh, let's see. And why don't we pick up, uh, another miscellaneous, um, this one, and we could have put this in a media literacy category, Mashable, March 24th, 12 people are behind most of the anti-vaxxer disinformation you see on social media. Uh, and of course this ties to the tech correction in terms of, you know, are we going to be able to have, what can we do about this idea that if you have platforms allowing people to free to speak freely, um, not only can you have a lot of extreme voices, but you can have, you know, small groups of people that can organize and really weaponize stuff. And so this goes through the, uh, the culprit, some of whom you're going to recognize, uh, they call them the disinformation dozen. They account for 73% of all anti-vaxxer, which is anti-vaccine content posted or shared on, um, uh, Facebook alone. And, you know, some of these are, uh, People like Robert F. Kennedy, um, Jr., uh, nephew of, of John F. Kennedy. Um, but there's other people that I have never, never heard of before, but they can just generate tremendous amounts of content, which can then be amplified and, and shared. So need to be continuing to talk about media literacy, you know, end of rant. That's and then, uh, one of the things that we have repeatedly said over and over again. Truth. Uh, let me, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. You, you choose. Uh, let me pick up, um, a couple of quick Google articles here. One of them, Wes, is I wanted to actually just, just to hand this on to you. We talked a little bit about Chromebooks and pens last week and the new style of pen is called USI. And I only, I only, uh, uh briefly watched part of the video, but Chrome Unbox has a great, uh, a video, an article they released yesterday to talk about the status of USI pens on Chromebooks. They're not universally compatible with all Chromebooks, but almost all new Chromebooks have the USI uh, interface on board. And from what I read in the article, there seems to be a lot of evolution of that technology in the last six months. And so if you are looking at buying uh, a, a touch uh, interface Chromebooks and you want to get a pen along with it, these USI pen, which is a, a standard that a lot of people sell USI pens now would be a good article for you to review. Excellent. Thank you so much. See, that's the kind of thing where you know that if you just kind of drop that in the show, you know, <laughs> perhaps our Chrome expert who's still, you know, moving in the in the Apple way, but very much still a Google, a Google guy will, will come to your aid. So thank you for that. I will. Yes. Be 
Absolutely. Um, one quick one, and then maybe one that might inspire a little more discussion. Uh, Google Drive's adding new search operators to help find specific files much easier. One, one of the few things I truly dislike about Google Drive is I feel like the search is terrible in comparison to Google's web search. And I oftentimes will spend minutes and minutes and minutes looking for something in part because I'm putting a Google web search style search in thinking it's going to work. And it turns out I have to be, uh, um, uh, uh, it's not even more nuanced because Google search itself is quite nuanced, but you have to uh, do kind of brute force uh, search plus opening a bunch of documents to find a good Google doc. So I think adding search capability, and in this case, a couple of, of, of uh, different flags you can put in uh, will help that process. And I would just add to that quickly. If you have not recently clicked on that little arrow at the top of the Google Drive search window, they have added a lot more filters that don't require you to know the tricks. And so I've been showing that to my students from, you know, seeing this file type to who owns this. I don't know if there's dates in there, but anyway, I, that's something that has been, you know, iterated on and improved. But if you're not clicking on it to see it, you may just be continuing to put your keywords and not be aware of that. Absolutely. And then one other thing that I want to talk about, um, and Wes is correct that I'm, I'm kind of in between platforms right now, although I will say the latest version of Chrome OS 89 is excellent and adds a lot of really great new features. Ignoring that for a moment, uh, there's a great article uh, from Ars Technica on March 25th that the Fairphone, which is kind of a, a, a C or, or, or maybe a B tier Android phone maker recently released their fifth version of an operating system for a five-year-old phone. And they, they just don't do that in the Android world. You're lucky to get two updates. Sometimes it's just one Android update and other times it's none because there is no, uh, uh, forced update regime like there is on the iOS uh, architecture. But this article goes into some detail about why the hardware that most Android phones utilize, which is referred to as Qualcomm chips, their ARM-based processors, Qualcomm has not made it easy to continue to update Android over time. And in fact, adds uh, things, or I'm sorry, doesn't add things to the chipset uh, that allow it to be utilized in the long term with new versions of Android. And the reason why I mention this is that, you know, I've all I've, sh- I've been very chagrined, I guess, a good way of putting it, about how terrible the updates are on Android phones. One of the th- reasons why I did move back to an iPhone is because uh, I have a two-year-old iPhone device. It's an iPhone XS. I know it's going to receive at least three more years of updates, if not more, because of, of the quality of the hardware, but also... Apple's very solid commitment to keep updating devices for the long term. And that's just not the case on the Android architecture. And if that is a Qualcomm issue, that certainly explains why Android struggles in providing long-term updates to their devices. Peggy George on the previous topic has given us the link to Kara Swisher's interview with, with Amy Klobuchar, why big tech should fear Amy Klobuchar. So we'll include that in our show notes Thank you for that, Peggy. Are you being tempted at all by Android phones, Jason, or are you solidly happy with your current pivot? I'm extremely happy with the hardware. Um, I did buy a used phone, which, to be honest, is probably going to be my strategy from now on in that um, – 
Oh yeah, and this was this was a thousand dollars when it's I it, this is with two hundred fifty six gigabytes of, of storage on it. I wanted a higher storage phone on the odd chance that at some point I leave my house and I want access to media, but um and I was able to get it for uh, less than half the cost of it new. The battery's not super great on it, but you can walk into an Apple store and they'll replace it for sixty bucks. So uh, that's probably going to be my strategy uh, from now on. So maybe in two years I buy an iPhone eleven or iPhone twelve. But um, iPhones hold value well, and used iPhones, used iPads, used. Um, uh, uh, MacBooks, they all tend to uh, uh, be high-quality wares. I would note, Wes, that taking one of your strategies, um, I decided to put up some of my equipment on sale for on Swappa um, and sold my six-year-old um, uh, iPad mini for like 160 bucks. Uh, shipped that out on Monday, and I have a couple of phones that I purchased that were kind of curiosity phones uh, that are up on Swap and Now. I'm going to take that money and buy an iPad Air 3, which is, oh. uh, uh, I think it was just a year ago when they stopped supporting those, but they're about half the price of what you would have oh. paid for it new 18 months ago. So, so that's a solid strategy. Uh, I sold our Xbox, actually. Rachel wanted to have interest in Animal Crossing, and I just think the Switch is a, is a better you know platform for the kind of games and stuff. We want to play. So anyway, I had had success selling the Xbox and then uh, picking up a Switch. I'm still, you know, sporting the iPhone 8. And at some point, I, I'm going to do the same thing. So I think, you know, phones and just how you figure that out for your family and, you know, anyway, the, the expense that's all, all involved there. One thing is interesting, I guess, our son's like on our T-Mobile. So we'll be like, will he ever leave that or just, you know, always stay on that? It's going to be more affordable for him to just, you know, stay on our plan. But um, that is, uh, it's a great strategy. And I think it's the same one that I will do as well. Because, yes, wouldn't it be great to have that extra camera? Sure, it would. You know, if if you've got the extra money laying around to justify it, you know, good good for you. But um, the, the they hold value, but they also, you know, back to your operating system point with Android. That's a really great thing with Apple is you're going to be continuing to get security updates and, and OS updates, you know, unless you've got a super super old device. And uh, that's that's a great thing that Apple's doing with their ecosystem. So, absolutely. Okay. Uh... Would we have to go back to tech correction? Do we not? I think we, yeah, we might, we might have to. Although you didn't do the breaking news. You want oh, to I didn't. Yeah. Shogun, go, 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 go. Breaking news. Uh, Google has announced it's canceling April Fools again this year. And the only reason why that I mention it is because I think it's probably a good call. Like we could all use a good laugh, but sometimes, uh, Google's, um, April Fool's jokes have been real enough that it caused some, you know, at least hand wringing. Also, remember Gmail was announced on April Fool's and that was real. So you know, who knows, right? But uh, Google has said that they will not have their uh, annual uh, product release, you know, all the ridiculous. I showed my kids today my favorite Google April Fool's ever, which is all the way back to 2010. And that is Google... Um, uh, translate for animals. Do you remember that one? I, do. I love that. And I mean, I said yeah. April Fools, and when I was showing this to my fifth graders, and they were like, "Is that real?" And all this because you know it is. It's totally done in such a great style. And here's the wild thing: is that immediately after that, I was talking to them about Neuralink. We we have. I'll put the link in. I have Wonderlinks, which I don't do every day, but they're just like really amazing things. You know, there's a drone video uh, which I didn't 
do as a geek of the week, but it's, it's this guy who this volcano's going off in Iceland, which Jason, maybe you've walked on that as you've traveled to Iceland. Uh, it hadn't erupted in 6,000 years. And this guy flew his drone right along the path of the lava and then, and basically threw the plume of lava that was shooting up. Like he almost lost his whole drone. Anyway, those are fun things to mention and, and share with the kids. And so we did Google Translate for Animals. And I said, I don't know if, you know, Google will do something like that. You know, and of course, these kids are, are you know, 11 years old. They don't remember any of that old stuff that Google did. So it was kind of fun to resurrect that. But what I was going to say is I talked about Neuralink saying, and this isn't science fiction because Elon Musk has put what he describes as a Fitbit in your brain in pigs. And that's kind of where that is now. And you know, the uh, I watched part of that press conference a few months ago, I think, where they were talking about the progress of that. And they've, you know, been able to allow, you know, paraplegics and quadriplegics to to be able to move cursors on the screen and, and be able to have some, you know, ability to, to move prosthetics, you know, just with their brain. So it's wild and stuff that, you know, it's appeared to be science fiction is is coming true. I think we are going to need to go back to the tech correction. We're just, we're rolling through the article. Say, this is what happens when we don't start with the tech correction. We, we get through these other articles. So, so let's talk about this one. We both dropped an article in here. So, uh, an Amazon driver, this is Business Insider on March 19th. Amazon driver quits and says that he felt as if that Amazon was over monitoring him and they call it AI powered truck cameras that are monitoring their drivers uh, uh, throughout their shift, looking for things like not wearing your seatbelt, uh, looking sleepy. And um, the driver felt like it had crossed a line for him and that uh, it went from being um, a, kind of a safety issue, you know, saying they're helping drivers be more safe to what he felt like he was being overly spied on. And my understanding from reading the article, and, and I, I read a couple of other things related to this, is that uh, generally speaking, this information is not being recorded. There are cameras, but they're only sending warnings out to the driver that they look sleepy or they fall asleep. And actually anti-fall asleep technology is in a lot of, of, of cars today where it will warn you if it thinks that you're not paying close enough attention or if your body slumps. Um, the um, But I, I guess I think it inspires a really interesting debate in schools because we actually have a pretty serious surveillance infrastructure in a lot of schools across the United States. And we certainly don't want to get into the debate about the appropriate appropriateness of that or whether or not it's a violation of student civil rights. That debate would well exceed an hour. And I would want to invite an experts to talk about that, to, to go to that type of topic. But it is really interesting that high tech companies are adding a lot of monitoring on, on a daily basis. And we talked about this several months ago when Microsoft started uh, announcing its release to some tools to help workers know whether they're being productive or how productive they're being. Or help administrators know if they're workers. Are. Right, right. Well, and sometimes it flips the script. Like, for example, I have a Microsoft account um, uh, at the University of Montana, but it's not the primary account I work in because we're our, our program is a Google Apps program, so I don't spend much time in the Microsoft stuff. It told me the other day it's been 27 days since I've engaged in any of the Microsoft tools. And I think it was congratulating me for taking a break, I guess, or for not being on it 24-7. I wasn't exactly sure. But, you know, it is an interesting question because if more 
learning, if more schooling happens in an online environment, it does provide more surveillance or more tracking than other more traditional environments. And there's there's something here. I know that student privacy is is has been a, become a bigger deal in the last 24 months, but I think it inspires some discussion. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a natural trajectory for technology to arc towards more control. And we're, we've talked in the show in the past about, you know, the, the, the Uyghur minority in Western China and the way in which the government there is apparently using surveillance technologies to the maximum to really oppress that my that that group which is a minority in china but they're a majority in in their region of western china uh as a tech director for four years it was it was incredibly fascinating to be in the middle of managing and having responsibility for a surveillance network um, at our school you know a few cameras here and there just grew over time to more and more and more and um you know, I, we weren't using any offsite cloud-based storage, but if you do choose to send your video and have it out on the cloud, there are incredible AI tools. And this was just, this was a couple of years ago. It's even better now that you could utilize to then analyze your, your data. For instance, Hey, did any white Jeeps drive on our campus in the last you know, 30 days is usually what you're going to, you know, keep in terms of, of video footage. Um, we're having conversations today in our one-to-one committee about filtering and what we're going to be, you know, going with for our one-to-one. And uh, I know Oklahoma City has a really, really powerful platform that they're able to not only at school see what kids are doing, but it's on-device filtering, which I think is good, but it actually almost gives you more information than you'd want. Parents can have a portal if, if the school chooses to turn that on, you know, seeing every website, every time a filter is tripped, just, you know, incredibly granular data about everything that, that the kids have done on their devices. So these are conversations in schools that if you're not having these, you, you know, someone on your campus should be having them just because the tool is available doesn't necessarily mean you should turn it on or you should be utilizing it to its full capability. But I do think this, this Amazon article, you know, points in that direction. The article I had put in uh, very similar was from the next web on March 24th. Amazon is asking drivers to sign a biometric consent form or lose their job. And so, um, you know, where do you where do you draw the line from a corporate standpoint from Amazon? You can see why it's really helpful for them to to just have a lot of data and 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 hopefully be able to use that data to improve their their processes. But, you know, at what point does a worker, a driver, you know, feel like a widget? And I heard a little bit of a podcast. I think this was on Today Explained by the, the gentleman who is organizing or trying to organize a labor union for Amazon workers and, you know, swimming upstream with that. So um, the, the other thing I'd say is that uh, I need to get the company right. Um, it's uh, with the pandemic. Yep, it is Proctorio, which is a really kind of a weird, a weird name. Um, and I think, um, Anyway, it's uh, th- this is a this is a company that is engaged in having camera surveillance tools that allow um, 
you know, a lot of universities, but doesn't have to be university. It could be uh, other levels of, of, uh, of schools and, and education, um, to be able to address potential cheating. And, but there's a lot of issues with that. And, you know, it, but this is something that's coming up. We, we had a panel discussion, which I suggested would be good to have about how we're handling assessment for what we call our flex learners, both in short term, you know, kids that are short term quarantining or just choosing to learn from home this. Uh, it po- it poses different challenges for us, and there are technology solutions and must technology solutions. And the last thing I'll say is that if you are having any kind of between school owned devices and BYOD, as a general T, uh, certainly in a lot of high schools, and I don't know, I don't have a real sense for how many public schools are in this mode, but we're certainly seeing more private schools go BYOD in high school, and then maybe school owned for you know elementary and middle school. Your capacity to let's say lock down the computer and lock students into a, a web page for a test or something like that, it's it's phenomenal from the I want to lock stuff down standpoint when you have school owned devices with a mobile device manager, when kids are on their own devices, you can still do things, but uh, there's less control there. So it is a challenging landscape. What advice would you have for administrators and tech directors out there thinking about all these surveillance choices, Jason, especially when they come to student devices? Well, I, I, I think you want to be careful. I think you want to make sure you're having conversations with instructional staff as much as you are with your IT staff. But then also think about the value of, of those tools. And if there are other ways you can do it um, that aren't, you know, constantly looking over a student's shoulder. Right. And I think that that's something that that has to be said. And it also doesn't fix the issue that oftentimes you have to teach kids to act appropriately as opposed to just mandating that they act appropriately. And I think that's something to be thought thought through, too. We, we do have a few more tech correction articles, but I yeah. realize I don't think you did your March Maddishness. No, this one was just, it's kind of silly and, and, and maybe, um, uh, maybe a waste of time, but I, I thought I was kind of interested in it. Um, someone, I'm not exactly sure who, Morning Brew on Twitter did a, uh, a bracket, a 64, uh, uh, team bracket, uh, to try to determine what is the greatest product of all time. And, uh, I loved it because it, and they did, took votes on Twitter and I did vote uh, on, on a couple of rounds of this. Um, uh, it's interesting. The, uh, the Elite 8 included, uh, Microsoft Windows, Lego, iPhone, Google Search, uh, the Air Fryer, YouTube, um, Spotify, Netflix, Coca-Cola, and Google Maps. So, uh, and there were some really epic battles. Uh, Velcro, uh, was in a heated battle with the Intel, Intel semiconductor, uh, and the Intel semiconductor ended up winning that epic battle on the Twitters. So did it, did they pick the winner? Cause it doesn't, it just has a gray square in the middle. Uh, they did. It was Google search, uh, okay. like three to one. It was Google oh. search. Yeah. 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 Definitely. So, I have kind of a story about that, and uh, maybe this is something we can talk about a little bit later. I did start something a couple weeks ago that I'm thinking about not continuing. Uh, I changed my default search on my personal Google account, or my sorry, my personal Chrome account to be DuckDuckGo, and I decided that I wanted to try for a couple of weeks to see what it looked like to move away from that for privacy purposes. And I'm reminded by this bracket that one of the reasons why I haven't liked it is because, frankly, Google search is better than DuckDuckGo. 
and I miss the results, I guess, of the Google search. And um, uh, uh, not all search engines are the same. And I think something that Google always have going for it, as long as it continues to develop this technology, is that, in my humble opinion, it's always going to give better results than other options in, in the search engine world. And let's be clear, they could be dethroned by a, an innovative competitor and then they're not the best search engine anymore. But at least for me at this time, I've been really reminded that Google search is a, a good platform and ignore everything else about Google for a moment and what they're doing with search results. But if you want to find something, I still think the best place to go is Google. Yeah, absolutely. That's what brought us all to Google in the first place. And then, you know, then they added Gmail and then, you know, they just keep on adding and adding. But, you know, back in the day, Alan November was teaching us how to use Alta Vista and the, you know, complex search queries to get the most out of your Internet research time. And, you know, Google's still still on top. So I, you know, continue to love YouTube, love, love Google and um yeah, we're, we're, we've, I mentioned this before. It's becoming probably like my broken record, but we're living in utopia and dystopia at the same time. And there are negatives to these platforms, but there are also some really, really phenomenal things. I was just marveling today. It was a podcast I was listening to and this guy, you know, I, I have, um, I, I knew that he had a he had his own a separate podcast and then his YouTube channel. And then I'm watching this content that he's creating and like that. The ability to connect to ideas like that and the way that Google not only lets us, you know, answer questions, but just, you know, have have useful value, derive useful value from the amazing network, which is the, the Internet and the World Wide Web. It's just yeah, pretty, pretty phenomenal. Uh, I have one more to pick up quick and I maybe we'll have to do Geeks of the Week. Uh, this is Mashable, March 28th. Parler explains free speech to angry users after sharing Capitol riot posts with the FBI. Wow. I think we should have a, a, a very big part of the civics curriculum in, in, um, schools today to really focus on free speech and to help clarify for folks, you know, what are the limits of free speech? We have, <laughs> probably a pretty large number of people in the United States today who are genuinely confused thinking that we're in the United States. We have an absolute right to unfettered and unfiltered free speech. We don't. And this isn't my geek of the week, but um, I wanted to finish watching the perfect weapon, which is, uh, I think it's Peter Singer. It's New York times basically uh, off of the book, a perfect weapon. It's only on HBO, which is kind of a bummer. I literally have paid on the app for I for iOS 15 bucks. And I'll see if I'm going to continue it after this. I, I paid that for one month because I wanted to watch this. Uh, and it's really a fantastic documentary, kind of the history of cyber warfare, taking you through a lot of things, which, We've mentioned on the show from Stuxnet, but there's other stuff like the Sands, uh, you know, hack uh, uh, of uh, the the uh, conservative, the guy who owns those, you know. Anyway, just things that have happened in the history of cyber in the in the recent past. But um, you know, this the other thing that I'm starting to watch is a six part quote unquote documentary about Q QAnon, and it's called Q Into the Storm. And I almost wasn't going to watch anymore after the first episode because it's almost a little celebratory rather than a like frontline style documentary. 
But to understand where 4chan came from and 8chan and how Gamergate fits in and these different parts of the culture war, and some of it has to do with people who think that we really should have in the United States an unfettered right to free speech with no holes barred. So um, that was that article was talking about Parler having to basically have a civics 101 conversation with users that there are some limits to free speech. Sorry, guys. Absolutely. Okay, let's do our Geeks of the Weeks. So I'll do mine quickly. A great NPR article from the other day that ended up losing an hour of my life last night, which is the best kind of article, in my humble opinion. Uh, the Louvre has announced that they now have almost a half million of their artworks uh, in their catalog available in high-quality scans on their website. And um, I think I, I have maybe mentioned in the past that uh, uh, I first went to the Louvre in the year 2000. My wife and I went back, then girlfriend, now wife, went backpacking in Europe. And my first real major uh, uh, museum experience was the Louvre, which is not necessarily a great thing because it ruins you for every other museum you'll ever go to. But it's such an amazing historical collection and archive, and I obviously have not uh, been able to travel for the last uh, over the last year, which is something that's been a, a little sad to me. But I did spend at least an hour last night digging through the Louvre's collection. Not only do they have high quality scans of, of everything in their library, they oftentimes will take the art out of the frame when it's a painting or drawing, so you can see the full canvas. They'll have close ups of any markings or labels or other kind of ephemera that comes with it, and uh, they also take high quality scans of the back of it, so you can see the construction. Of the frame. Super nerdy, but uh, worth your time. Um, and that's report by NPR News and collections.ruv.fr. So. We would expect nothing less for a Geek of the Week. Unfortunately, mine is not nearly as positive, but this is one of the most important and just, ugh, just really, really um, jarring articles I've ever read. And it's by a, a journalist named Liz Lenz, and it's called When the Mob Comes. And it is um, a story of her talking about when, as she's been a journalist, how she has been attacked viciously uh, for the opinions and the ideas that she has shared. And then it's an interview with another woman, journalist, female journalist, uh, Talia Lavin. And they're talking about advice for journalists and journalism is so important uh, you know, I lived in Mexico for a year, you know, things are just a lot different. They were in, in the early nineties there, uh, things have changed, but you know, here in the United States, journalism everywhere is a really, really important thing. And the brutal, the, the brutality and the death threats and the horrific darkness that journalists can be and are subjected to in this current internet. I am very thankful that this is not the world of Twitter I have lived in. I've heard people talk about this. So anyway, it's just an eye-opening article and it may cause you to think about how much of a digital footprint you have. And especially for students who are thinking about journalism and want to be journalists, um, it can be very, very important to try and and keep your identity off of the web so that people can't dox you, which means when they are going to publish your address and your phone number and your other identifying information. So sorry to lay kind of a negative one on you, but wow, that really blew my mind today. So that's my geek of the week. 
Well, thank you. Wes, where can we find you on the internet? You can go to westfriar.com slash after and get all of those links. W Fryer is my Twitter handle, and that's where I am sharing the most. How about you, Dr. Knight? I'm on Twitter, Tech Savvy Teach. That's where I like to talk about technology as it particularly relates to education. But this here is the EdTech Situation Room. We are a once-a-week podcast where we like to talk about technology news, shoot it through the education prison, and hopefully provide some insight for our listeners. You can Join us every Wednesday night at 9 p.m. Central Time, 8 p.m. Mountain Time, or somewhere in the middle of the night, UTC. Of course, it's an hour off, again, because of daylight savings time. If you can't listen to us live, although we hope you do, please find us wherever finer podcasts are aggregated or at our website, edtechsr.com, or on YouTube, where you can find archives of the show. Until next time, stay safe, stay savvy, and we'll see you here next time on the EdTech Situation Room. Good night. Good night, everybody.